RUF, we want to be a place for anybody. So if you are doubting, you're not even sure you're a Christian, or you have no idea what, who God is, or if God's even there, we, we're like really glad you're here. Um, if you like have been a Christian your whole life, and you've been to church your whole life, and you know all the stories and everything, we're really glad you're here. If you're somewhere in between, if you're angry at God, if you're struggling with, I don't know, some serious dark sin, like we all are, um, we're glad you're here because what we're saying is we're all we're all sinners, we're all big sinners, and we all need a savior, and we're like beggars that have tasted a little bit of that bread of the gospel, and we're trying to help other people taste a little bit of the bread of the gospel, and really that's what we're about. So we're not we're not trying to like pressure anybody. We're not trying to like pretend. We're just trying to be honest uh, with who God is and who we are. And so um, this is a place where you can ask questions, a place where you can get coffee or lunch with us. Um, with, and we just want to talk. We're not going to like weird you out with pressure or anything like that. That's, that is not... When I open the Scriptures, I don't see that. I don't see that with Jesus. I see Him um, speaking grace and truth and love and people are following Him and He is... He's actually more angry at the Pharisees and the religious people who think they have it all together. And the sinners and the desperate people, he is like, here's some grace. And so, um, if you're in need of grace, this is the place. This is the place for you. This, this semester, we're looking at Exodus. And uh, you might wonder, like, why and what in the world are we doing in the Old Testament? I mean, Jesus is in the New Testament, right? Um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, there's 27 books in the New Testament. But guess what? What we believe is the entire Bible is God's Word. And if we don't know the Old Testament, we're never going to understand the New Testament or what Jesus is all about because so much of the story is Jesus fulfilling everything that happened in the Old Testament. And so when we go back to Genesis or Exodus or wherever we are, that is gospel. There's gospel in there. It's not just God was this mean, angry God of wrath in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden in the New Testament, God became a God of grace. There was grace and wrath in the Old Testament, and there's grace and wrath in the New Testament. It's the same God. And so we're looking at Exodus because I believe, like, we would be like really uh, malnourished if we didn't look at the Old Testament. If we just spent all our time um, just in one part of the Bible. So it's like a buffet. You got to eat. You know what? I'm like doing all this crazy diet because of my celiac and all that. And one of the books I read, she said, you have to eat the colors of the rainbow. This is what you need to do with your paleo diet. Eat the colors of the rainbow. So like all different kinds of meat. You want liver? You should have some liver. That's high in iron. I mean, just she wants you to eat like all kinds of different things. And so what I'm saying about the Bible is, it's like the colors of the rainbow. Like you need to take all of it in, Old Testament, New Testament. So don't. So if you're like dry in your faith, because you've been reading like I don't know, uh, Romans all the time, which is awesome. Go back and read a minor prophet. Go back and read a minor prophet and see what that does. Or go back and read Exodus, because we're going to read through Exodus this semester. Okay, I've talked too much. Let me read Exodus. Uh, Here we go. This is Exodus chapter 1. And then I'll do my intro after that. Um, But I'm just going to read it. So here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, 
Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, excuse me, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah. There you go. There's some names for your girls. Uh, when, you, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the, on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This ends reading of God's Word. So yesterday um, marked the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the Holocaust death factory. I don't know if you guys were aware of that. Um, but that was the place... And I believe it's in Poland where the Germans put about 1.1 million Jews to death. Um, this, there was a sign on the front of the Auschwitz that said in German, work will set you free. And they went in there thinking, oh, we're going to work and this is there's going to be freedom. Well, as you know, that it was a death camp. You know, they worked and they basically built the German war machine and when they wore out, they incinerated them. Just horrible things. And they tested them with different experiments and uh, everything that we you know, read about. If you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum, you need to go there. If you've never been there, you need to go there and just weep. Um, so Monday, this past Monday, there was a ceremony there and there was about 300 survivors that are still alive that that went there to revisit and uh, 
And their main goal was we, we need to keep this memory alive. We need, to, we need to tell the world about this. Don't forget, world. Don't forget how evil people can be. Don't forget that this actually happened. And it was only 70 years ago. 70 years ago. I'm 50. So 20 years before I was born. That's when all that... I mean, that's you guys are 20. So that... I mean, just think about that. That's not that long ago. And one of the survivors, he said bitterly, some of the people still saying that it, the Holocaust, never happened. I'm here to tell the world it happened. I'm strong enough and I'm a victor. And the world has to learn from it and to live in peace. The guy by the name of Mordecai Ronan. Another survivor, Samuel Beller from the U.S. said, For 40 years, I did not open my mouth about what happened there. But, but after somebody told a girl in high school that you don't have to know about the Holocaust, it got me so upset. I said, why a girl, a Jewish girl, should not know about these things? I was very, very shook up. So I started to go after this. And ever since, I don't stop talking about it. No longer afraid to present his camp tattoo, a number given to every inmate stripped of their name and personality. And so today we're, we're looking at this story of Exodus. And it's a story which deals, even has this issue of bondage, slavery, forced labor, and even genocide in it. It's an amazing story we need to remember. Now, what we're ultimately remembering is how God delivered His people. And so, you know, even even these, these surviving um, Holocaust survivors, I mean, the amazing thing is they, they were able to get out. They were able to get out. There was about 7,000 that were set free when the actually it was the Russian troops came in and delivered them at the end. But, you know, tonight we're, we're beginning this series and we're thinking about Israel uh, in Egypt, Israel in bondage. And all through the Scriptures, um, God uses this big picture of Israel in bondage in Egypt as a picture of not just Israel back then, but as actually a picture of us. That we were the ones enslaved to our sin. We were the ones enslaved to our selfishness. We were the ones enslaved to our GPA. We were the ones enslaved to our parents' approval. We were the ones enslaved to our boyfriend's approval. I mean, all of these things we put ourselves under, all of our sin, our bondage. And what the Gospel is doing is it's Jesus setting us free from Egypt. And bringing us out into His light. And ultimately bringing us then into the wilderness. Because we're in the in-between time. Jesus has delivered us, but He has not ultimately come again and set us free so that the whole world is made new and we're in heaven, right? So we are in this in-between time. And so, so what we're going to see in Exodus is Israel being delivered, but also then the big march through the wilderness. And that, all through the New Testament, is a picture of the Christian's experience in this world. That the Christian has been delivered from their sin, but now they are in the wilderness. And Jesus, and they haven't quite made it to heaven yet. They're delivered, they're saved, they're justified, they're going to be there, but this is a place of pain. This is a place of turmoil. This is a place of temptation. And Jesus is with us through that wilderness, through that desert. 
So that's why Exodus is so such a wonderful and amazing book because it's us back then and it's us right now. It's what Jesus is doing. And so today we're simply just going to look at um, this this issue of oh you know what I uh, my printer um, was printing on two sides. That's why I was mixed up. Um, so now I'm back. Uh, but I want to talk about this idea. So here Israel is, and the big question I want to ask you guys, ask, and I think the text is asking, is does God care? Does God care? Because what's happened here in the beginning portion is, right off the bat, it says that all of the leaders of Israel have died. Everyone that went down to Egypt with Joseph, they're all gone. The twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Jacob, of Israel. And so now the question is, all of God's people are down in this foreign land and there's a new leader who doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember all the many, many things that Joseph did. And they are alone. And the question is, is God going to care for them? And so that's the question I want to ask to this test or this text here is just how does God care about his people? And does God care when the leaders die? And this passage is saying, yes, he does care. He cares when the when our families die, when our leaders die, he cares for a new generation. And as you look at this passage, you see that it was bad. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Um, they had come to Egypt through Joseph, okay? And they were, uh, and Joseph had risen to second in command. He was in excellent favor. And if you remember the story in Genesis, um, Joseph saved the world basically because the Lord told him about the famine that was going to hit for seven years. And he said, you need to build storehouses for grain. Because there's this huge famine coming and you need to save up. And so Joseph saves up and he builds these huge grain towers and the world basically comes and is fed by Egypt. And because of that, the family, Joseph's family and brothers, they all come down as well and they are saved in the midst of this famine. But guess what? Now all of those people are dead and there's new leadership in Egypt. And so there's a vacuum Think about the issues. Think about the instability. But here's what the passage says. And you might be thinking, well, I mean, does God care for them? Everybody's dead. But it says this in 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So, it's almost as if all of this, these awful things are happening. Their leadership is dead. Um, they no longer can look up to these people they followed, these patriarchs, these heroes of the faith. They're alone. And you would think, okay, God, it's over. But what's God do? <laughs> they increase and they're fruitful. And everywhere in the Scriptures it talks about being fruitful and multiplying. That's a blessing. So in the midst of this new land... In the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of all their leaders dying, what is God doing? God is like 
blessing his people. So here's the here's the thing. The book of Exodus is a continuing story, okay? From Genesis. It's not just like Exodus is a new thing. It's all built together. Exodus is built on Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, God said to Adam and Eve, like, be fruitful, multiply. That was a blessing. And they did. And now Israel is continuing on that. And it's, it's like you can't keep God's people down. The leaders are dying off, but boom. Baby boom. There's all these... There's all, it's like a chia pet. You just can't stop it. Okay? So they're just growing. Okay? And that's a blessing. God is like saying, no, I love you. I care for you. Um, so think about that as you, as you think about your situation uh, as well. Um, you know, there's lots of uncertainty for seniors out there. You don't know where you don't know if you're going to get a job. You don't, you know, you're you're wondering about the future. I mean, even just thinking about the economy and everything else, we can just be overwhelmed with like worry and anxiety. And what this is saying is, is God's people, He's with them. He's going to bless them. He's going to help them in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of their families dying, their leadership dying, their vision dying. He's going to begin new visions and He's going to make them strong. Um, this past Sunday at Wallace, there was a man who came and he's a friend of mine. His name is Tim. And uh, he's now in a large Asian country in the Far East. You might be able to think what country that is. And uh, this country was under a communist rule for many, many years. And in 1949, there was a dictator that came on the scene. And when he came on the scene, he kicked out all the missionaries and he basically made it illegal to worship God. And they believed that at that time, there was maybe 500,000 to three-quarters of a million believers in this large country in the East. So the church goes underground. Does it die off? They thought it would. No. When the church reemerges after communism has kind of slowly been trickling away there, um, and basically around 2000, they believe there was something like 80 to 100 million believers now in that country. So in, so in 50, 60 years, the church goes underground. All the Americans, all the, Engl- all the Western missionaries are kicked out. They don't need us. And God, the, by the work of the Spirit, just like blows that place up, that blows the church up. To the point now where the the house church movement is basically over. They're not really hiding. They're un, they're called unregistered churches. And he said that this past year he's been helping other uh, ministers like plant churches and that sort of thing and like become seminary trained. And he said that at one of their meetings, the security officers, the police came in to like basically harass them um, and to shut their meet, shut their church service down. But what happened was, literally by the end of that time, some of the police stayed back and they let them continue the worship service and they actually were singing hymns with them. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's going on. That's the kind of thing that because, because God has people and He sends His Spirit, that whatever the problem, He continues to work His plan. And He did it for Israel and He does it for, now, for us now. He does it for the church now. 
The second big, the second big transition that happens in this passage is uh, political change and oppression. And so, as you read through this story, first all the all the Israelite leaders die, and then verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, "Behold, the people of Israel too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies." And so. What happens is a new pharaoh is a new sheriff's in town, so to speak. Okay, and there's governmental change, and you could think that okay, now this guy—I mean, it's going to be over. He's just going to—he's um, going to oppress them, which he does, and he forces them into labor, and he makes them slaves. And it says in verse ten that he dealt shrewdly with them. He sets taskmasters over them. Basically, they become the people who build the Egyptian empire. And they build these store cities of Pithom and Ramses. And you can go and look. The archaeological places are there. And they believe the Israelites were the ones that were building. They weren't pyramids, but they were these huge store cities where they were building up grain. And and they believe military um, weapons as well. And so... um, in 13, it says, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It, it mentions bitter service. And if anybody in here has ever done like a Passover Seder meal, there's a part of that where they eat the bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs were to remind them of their time in Egypt where they were laboring under the taskmasters, and it was bitter labor. There, I'm sure there were tragedies, there was injustices, there was abuse, there was long hours. And you would think, okay, they're just going to be wiped out. I mean, this is going to be the end of Israel. But again, verse 12, <laughs> but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. It's like, you can't keep these people down. They keep oppressing them. Boom! They're popping up. It's a baby boom. It's like everywhere. The more, the more, the more Pharaoh tries to reject his people, the more God keeps making them fruitful. It's amazing. And the reason why this is is because God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter twelve. He said, "Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing, and I'm going to make you a great nation." In fact. Look up at the stars, Abraham. Do you see them? As many stars as you can. That's how your descendants are going to be. Look at the sand on the seashore. You see that? All that sand, the grains of sand? That's how big your family is going to be. So you see what's happening is God is fulfilling His promises. He told Abraham, your family is going to be huge. And here it is in Exodus. The family is getting huge. The family is expanding. So oppression, hatred, evil stuff's going on towards God's people, but God cares. God's with them and God's promises um, continue on. Can it get any worse than this? Yes, it can. And so what's the next thing? Well, the next thing is genocide. I mean, this is, this is how bad it was for the people of God. Literally, annihilation of a people. That's what we have here. Verse 15, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, 
If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, you shall live. So that was the decree. And that's what they were supposed to do. But, here's a God thing here. Because the midwives, it says they feared God. Okay? Um, what does it mean to fear God? What verse is that? 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm afraid of God? I'm going to run from God like a lion in the room? It's not that. It's this idea of giving God your ultimate allegiance. It's saying that above Pharaoh's decree, I give God my life. I give God my obedience. And I honor Him. So this is what the midwives were doing. They feared God. They were believers. And they, even in the midst of this oppression, they could have said, okay, God, we're now enslaved. All of our leaders have died. There's political oppression. The Egyptian pharaoh hates us. We're in slave labor. Forget you, God. I don't have any need for you anymore. I'm going to go ahead and worship the Egyptian gods. No. They knew deep down. They knew deep down that God was blessing them. He was increasing them. They, they knew deep down those promises in Genesis were true. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going to make your family great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. They believed. They saw God's hand at work saving them. When, when, Jacob, or when Joseph went down to, to Egypt in the first place. So they had all of this ammunition against their doubts to say, no, we've seen the hand of God at work, even with increasing our children and our families while we're in oppression. We will not obey you, Pharaoh. We will give our allegiance to the Lord, to the God of Israel. And so this is what the fear of God does to people. And so just a side note here, like when, when should you disobey the government? It's a good question. Because in the Bible, you see these different parts, different places where Christians will disobey the government. And, you know, you should disobey the government anytime it's taking something of the Ten Commandments. Like, don't kill. Don't steal. If your government is telling you to do those things, you say, no, my, my ultimate government is God. If your government is saying, you should commit adultery, that's a good thing. No. God is my, my Lord, and He says no to that. And so, it's based on our allegiance to the Word of God, and we're saying that Ten Commandments, we're saying that these laws that He's put for society are ultimately from His heart. They're not man-made. They're God's laws, and we're heeding them. So that's where wisdom comes in, discernment. But you got to know your Scriptures. So what happens in the midst of this genocide? Well, God intervenes. These women are, these, these women are fearing Him. And again, it says that, uh, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied. That's the theme of this passage. And grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. So this is, here's the big picture. At every point, God is seemingly silent. Okay, God's actually not mentioned a lot in this passage, just right at the end. But He's there, and He is giving His blessing, and He's remembering Abraham and the promises, and He's saying, no, even though my people are oppressed, even though they're in Egypt, even though they're in the worst spot ever, even though there's genocide, 
I am going to bless them. I am going to increase them. And Pharaoh, you can't do anything about it. Because I'm the ultimate king. I'm the ultimate God. And so, this is really uh, what we have here in, in Exodus. We have this battle between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of man is Pharaoh and Egypt and trying to suppress God's people, trying to take them out. And on every hand, whether it's, you know, their leaders are dying or whether it's slavery and oppression, whether it's genocide, on every account, God is saying, gotcha. My promises are going forward. Your kingdom is going to submit to my kingdom because I am God. I am the Lord. I am good. And so, you know, thinking about this and and really even pointing forward, um, you know, as you think about Jesus, you know, as we point forward, He was one as well who went through some of the worst trials of all. Just like Israel did. You know, the Lord Jesus was oppressed. The Lord Jesus was uh, ultimately killed and sacrificed on the cross. And the kingdom of man thought that they had taken him out, that it was over. But we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus on the third day rose again, defeated sin, defeated death, defeated Satan. That the same God that is defeating Pharaoh in Egypt with Israel is the same God that ultimately in Christ defeats all of the worldly powers at the cross and and with His resurrection. We're on the other side of that. We've got a lot more evidence now that God works. And we've got Jesus who defeated death, defeated all the principalities and powers of our world, and is now reigning on high. And so, as you think about your life, as you think about changes, as you think about, does God care for me? My family's going through health issues. Or there's just a lot of struggles in my life, financially, or my future, or whatever. What it means to be a Christian is to remember. Is to go back and say, just like... Just like Israel down in Egypt was being enslaved and oppressed and going through all these trials, God was in the midst of that and He was caring for them. He was blessing them even in the midst of that. And ultimately, He shows us that with Jesus at the cross. And so, part of this passage, it begs a question like, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of Egypt? Are you on the side of Pharaoh? Or are you on... God's side? Are you on the side of Israel? Are you submitting yourself to this God of Israel who's the ultimate good God? Not the God who oppresses. Not the God who's taking people out and killing babies. But the God who's actually um, coming and dying for us in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank You for uh, Your Word tonight. Thank You for this passage in Exodus. Lord, I know there was a lot there and um, but Lord, we just thank You for this, these pictures of Your multiplying Your people uh, in the midst of dark times, in the midst of trials and political um, uh, desperation, Lord, and even genocide. Lord, that You were with Your people, that You were blessing them in the midst of that. So Lord, 
Help us, Lord, in the, in the issues that we're going through to remember that You care. Lord, that Your promises stand. Uh, so we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song as we, as we close.
Hey, oh, one, one more announcement, ladies and gentlemen. Right over here is Mrs. Nora Smith. <laughs> She got married. She got married. <laughs>